This is our in-depth study of the book of Luke. We are going line by line, verse by verse, as we are in the last week of the life of Jesus, really covering the Passion Week. This is somewhere in the middle of the week. Most people think that these con this confrontation chapter, that's chapter 20, the whole thing is confrontation from beginning to end. Jesus having confrontations with the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the priests, the Herodians, which is a specific group we're gonna talk about today, which was different than all of these other groups we're talking about. But he had confrontations with each of them because they, they hate him. In fact, in the parable that Jesus told that led up to this account, you remember that Jesus gave the parable about people who said, this is the son, let's take him and kill him that the inheritance may be ours. And that would tell us that they knew that he was the son of God. They just didn't want to have anything to do with him once he showed up and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to kill him in the most brutal way. They didn't just want to kill him. They wanted him to be crucified. They wanted to hand him over to the Romans. They knew he was popular. The, uh, the right of execution had been taken away from Israel about 10 years before this, approximately 10 years before this. And the, um, however, they still stone people. And not only do we have that in the Bible, but we have historians. They would get angry, mobs would get upset. They would stone people. They did it to Stephen. We have Herod killing James a little bit later on. So there were executions outside of Rome. They didn't want to do that because the people loved Jesus. They knew they had to do it something that was more formal, that they couldn't get the blowback that would fall back on them. And so they are looking to trap him any way they possibly can. This account seems to us to be kind of a lighthearted account where the Pharisees and Herodians are coming by and they say to Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? But that's not what this is at all. And we're going to see that really clearly as we as we dive in uh, to this. They are um, they are truly out to get him. Now, you remember the last thing that we read was in Luke 20 verses verse 19. And it says the chief priest and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They'd already wanted him dead but as soon as he said this parable, they wanted him dead even worse. And so they set out to find a way to trap him. This is their first attempt. We're going to get more attempts as this chapter continues on. We'll have three more studies in this chapter. But this one here starts off in verse 20, where it says, so they watched him. They wanted to catch him. He was in the temple area. So they watched him. This is surveillance. They had people watch what he was doing and where he was going because they wanted an opportunity to have him arrested. If this is Wednesday, it could be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. If it is Wednesday, it's only two days before Judas will lead them into the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will then be betrayed by him and handed over to, first of all, the Jewish guard and then to the Roman guard. It says then that they watched him and they spent spies, sent spies who pretended to be righteous. So these were guys who weren't righteous and were pretending. In fact, if you look at the things that Jesus says to the Sadducees and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 
that that's the woe chapter. Woe unto you, you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. They are pretending to be righteous anyway. When you read all of the things that he says there, you see that they are not, they don't have a sincerity in their, in their religion, a sincerity in their heart. They are getting what they can get. They're misusing people. They're abusing their power. This is one of the reasons that Jesus had his strongest words against the Pharisees. And it's another reason that you and I do not want to be evangelical Pharisees in any way, shape or form. We don't want to pray to be just to to be heard by people. We don't want to be give to be seen. We don't want to do the things that Pharisees did. We want to have sincerity in our walk and our faith towards Christ. And so these spies came and they pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words. They were looking for an opportunity to get an accusation against him in order to deliver him to the power and the authorities of the governor. So again, this isn't just some innocent question that they have, like let's trap Jesus. They want to seize his words and then they want to give an accusation and they want him arrested by Rome. This is their plan. And so these guys pretending to be righteous show up and in verse 21, then they asked him saying, teacher, we know that you, uh, that you say and teach rightly. Now these guys are pretending. Nothing like a little flattery to set someone up. We know that you are awesome. In fact, even the word teacher here is the highest word for teacher that you could possibly use in the Greek. So they're, they're really laying it on heavy. And you can get that. Teacher. They asked him saying, we, we know that you teach rightly and you do not show partiality, favoritism, personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, let's consider those few things they said to Jesus because what they don't know is that each one of them is indeed true. They asked him saying, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. The things that Jesus is teaching are the things that are right. It is his words that give us life. They were saying it mockingly, but it is true. And he, um, and he does not show personal favoritism. God doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care how famous you are. He doesn't care what kind of power you have. He doesn't care if you're a, you're a high court judge. He doesn't care if you're a movie star. He doesn't care how much influence you have. He doesn't care how, much, how rich you are. He treats everyone the same. We saw this in Wednesday, at Wednesday night when we were talking about our unity in Christ that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no male, no female, no rich, no poor. We all have the same access to God. Even a pastor, teacher, someone who may even be famous, we sometimes think, boy, they've got better access to God than we do, but it's not true. We all have the same access and God shows no personal favoritism. And then, but you teach the way of God in truth. And Jesus indeed teaches the way of God and truth. Everything that they said to flatter him was actually the truth about Jesus. They did not expect that. Then they asked the question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is a bit of a, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a smart question. I don't know if I'd call it genius or not, but they're trying to trap him and they know that the people hate taxes. Rome was all about the taxes. 
It took 400,000 tons of grain just to feed the people in Rome, just in Rome. They collected taxes from all over the province to feed the people in Rome. And there were times when there was famines in Rome that caused real problems for Rome. On top of that, they had all of their building projects. They had all of the Roman roads that they were building. On top of that, Herod had been over Palestine for a long time. And he taxed the people to be able to build the temple, to be able to build Masada, to be able to build Herodian, the other building projects that Herod was doing. In fact, they were so taxed. I, I read this last night. It was a, um, an article, uh, the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus. And if you look that up, you'll find the article. I checked it, it it'll come right up. I forget the name of the website. But if you look up the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus, it's um, fairly lengthy, but it's good. And it covers how the Roman Empire was doing things during that time. I was specifically looking for execution. When did Rome take away the execution from Israel? I was looking for that information. But I found some information on taxes, which I thought, how convenient. I'm looking for one thing, but I found something else. And so here is what this article said about Herod. It said, not only did Herod expand the temple in Jerusalem to be more grandiose and Hellenistic and Roman in style, but he also imposed a sacrifice that the priest would give on behalf of Rome and the emperor. So he set up so that the high priest or the priest would go in, make a sacrifice for Rome and for the emperor. Additionally, Herod had whole cities named to be given a reverence to Caesar, as well as imperial temples and fortresses to reinforce Roman control. The great building companies were, uh, uh, excuse me, the great building campaigns were not possible without taxing the people of Galilee, Samaria, and Judea greatly, leaving the majority in poverty. This is how heavy the taxes were. Not only did they have Roman taxes, but they had the taxes that Herod laid on them to be able to do the things that Herod was doing. And he led the whole region into poverty. No wonder they hated tax collectors and thought they were turncoats. No wonder people were shocked when Jesus went to the house of a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, to eat. And you remember that Jesus was even forced to pay taxes in his life. That he sent Peter, him and Peter were forced, and he sent Peter to go catch a fish and he would find a coin in the mouth that he could go and pay his taxes. I try that when I fish, I've got to pay taxes, but the Lord never seems to do that for me. I guess it's got to be something that's said beforehand, not afterhand, to try to be able to pay your taxes. So if Jesus says, um, don't pay your taxes to, to Caesar, then the people are going to be happy with them. That's what they want to hear. This is what the zealots were saying. There had already been a, a revolt 20 years before Jesus over taxes. The next revolt would be in 64. That would finally end up with them destroying Jerusalem. Taxes were so important to them. Wars are fought most often over taxes, which is really crazy. The founding of the United States was over taxes, right? Taxation without representation was the big cry. We're being taxed. And so we're going to take all this tea off this boat and we're going to throw it into the harbor because we're not going to pay taxes on it. And then the shot was heard around the world and everything kind of took off from there. So taxes are a big deal. 
the people would be happy with him. And this might be the way the zealots thought things were going to go, that Jesus was going to fight against the Romans. And they're hoping that Jesus says that because then they can go and say, he said not to pay taxes. In fact, in the book of John, when they stand before Herod and Herod looks like he's going to let Jesus go, Herod's like, I don't find this man doing anything wrong. I find no reason to crucify him. They say this. He said not to pay taxes to Caesar. It's a flat out lie. They tried to trap him in it. He wouldn't answer that way. And so when push came to shove and they were trying to make sure he got crucified, he had already been arrested. They lied about it. Had Jesus said, pay your taxes, then the people were going to be upset at Jesus. At least that was their hope. So it's this kind of trick question that they give about taxes. It also helps us to answer the question whether or not we should pay our taxes. Because every once in a while, there's somebody who comes on the scene and they seem to be embraced by the Christian community to some degree, by evangelicals to some degree, where they will say, it is unconstitutional to pay your taxes. You don't have to pay them. Don't pay your taxes. Personally, I don't know whether it's constitutional or not. It's not my area to pay taxes. But here's what I do know, that if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to have a prison ministry. God's going to use you inside a prison to be able to minister to people who are there. Now, maybe that's God's plan. Maybe you just get caught up in not wanting to pay your taxes. And so, you know, you'll find yourself in prison and paying it. But uh, taxes are a serious deal and the government doesn't mess around. And we'll talk in a moment about whether or not we should be paying ours. Uh, verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness. He was like, I know your flattery. He perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, why do you test me? He just calls them out. And I love that. Just very honest and straightforward. Why are you testing me? Show me a denarius. Now, I think it's interesting, first of all, that Jesus doesn't have a denarius. He doesn't say, I've got a denarius here in my money bag. I don't think Jesus had a money bag. I don't know that he ever had a money bag. We know that Judas kept the money box for the disciples. We also know that wealthy women followed the disciples and Jesus and provided for him during his ministry. And so he needs to be shown a denarius. We also know that the scribes and Pharisees, as far as we know, I mean, they could have been faking, right? They probably faked a lot of things. But if you carried a denarius, then that was considered idolatry in the days of Jesus because it has the likeness of the emperor on it. So, devout Jews in their day carried copper coins that were blanks or carried silver that were blanks. They had nothing stamped on them because to them, it would have been idolatry for them to carry anything. So these guys that said, should we pay our taxes? And who knows? I mean, I would love if that were answered. I would love if it said, and one of the, you know, one of the pretenders pulled out a denarius because that would even be another step of showing that they really were fakes completely because a true religious leader in the days of Jesus, idolatry was not a thing during the days of Jesus in, in Israel, at, at least not a major thing. And so they did everything they could to try to stay away from idolatry. Remember that Pilate brings in the banners of Rome at one point and there is a riot in Jerusalem because he brings these banners in that have the Roman eagle on it. And they considered that to be idolatry. So I don't know who showed up with the denarius. 
I don't know if it was one of the Roman guards around there or somebody who just didn't care. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was Matthew, the tax collector. Yeah, Jesus, I got one right here. Let me give you a denarius. But a denarius is a day's wages. And a denarius was also how you would pay your taxes to Rome. You could have a gold denarius, which would be 20 days wages, or a silver denarius, which would be one day's wage. It had either Augustus on it. Remember that Octavian, Augustus, was the first emperor of Rome. Julia, he was Julius Caesar's adopted son, and he became the emperor, and he was the first one to be called God, really. And he had coins made, and they were still around, had a lot of them minted, and were still around in his day. Uh, Tiberius had denarius made. So Tiberius was the emperor during the life of Jesus. And there are, there in Caesarea Philippi, there was a Tiberium there. A Tiberium was a place where you went to worship the emperor. Emperor worship was in full swing during the time of Jesus and the church afterwards. And there was a Tiberium that Pilate had built for Tiberius in Caesarea Philippi. So Tiberius, it could have been by Tiberius's picture that was on it on this denarius, but it would have had the picture of one of the Caesars. And they answered, he says, whose image and inscription do you have? And they said, Caesars. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesars. And of course, this is brilliant. It's full of wisdom because we are, one writer put it this way, we're in between two worlds. We are citizens of heaven and sojourners on earth, but we can't get up into heaven. Our feet are on this ground. And so we have to interact with this world. And because we interact with the world, the government that we're in, we partake of. We drive on roads that are paid for with taxes. We have all kinds of things, maybe not enough for the amount of taxes that we pay but we have all kinds of things that we take advantage of because we pay taxes. And I want to read a couple of passages to you that help us to understand our interaction with the government around us. By the way, when Romans 13 was written, it is believed that Nero was the emperor. Nero is probably the worst leader ever. I don't know that you could get, I don't know that you could get a worse leader than Nero. Nero burned down half of Rome. The Senate turned him down for rebuilding a certain section of Rome. He burned it down so he could rebuild it. That's a bad emperor. He eventually was removed and committed suicide. But listen to what Paul says about the way you and I are supposed to interact with the government. Because we could easily say, well, I don't agree with the government. So I, I don't know that I need to obey it. Listen to what he says. This is Romans 13, one through four and six and seven. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Subject yourself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. We know because Paul is talking during the time of the Roman government that it doesn't mean they need to be godly. It means that they're doing the job that God has given them and they've been appointed by God. Sometimes God appoints bad leaders in judgment against a people. 
It's always not just good leaders, but it sometimes is bad leaders as judgment. Therefore, it says, whoever resists the authorities, resists the ordinance of God. When you're resisting the authority, when you're not subject to them, you're resisting God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So God's serious about this. If we're resisting the government for no good reason, we're bringing judgment on ourselves. For rulers are not a terror for good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authorities? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. He's a servant. He's a public servant. He's there for our good. But if you do evil, be afraid. Be very afraid. No, that's Yoda. That's somebody else. Be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, which means he has authority. That's all that means. He does not, the government does not bear the sword in vain. They have authority for he is God's minister to avenge, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. For because of this, you also pay taxes for they are God's ministers attending continually to these very thing. Therefore, render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor. So that's pretty clear that as Christians, we are to subject ourselves to the government. We say, well, what if the government is doing things that we don't like? Well, so was Rome. We still subject ourselves to them. Doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything that they're doing. It doesn't mean we can't speak against it. Doesn't mean in our system that we can't vote against it. They couldn't have voted against it because they were living under an empire that had an emperor. But doesn't mean that we can't do that. But it does mean that we support the authorities and I also believe that it means that we pray for those who are in authority over us. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, we get another passage where we're told about the government. He says, Therefore, I exhort you, first of all, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. We are to pray for those that are in authority over us. This might be a little bit convicting for us that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Why are we supposed to pray for them? Because it is in our quiet and peaceable lives that we are living for Christ daily and we can plant seeds and water and people can come to Christ. This is our main call why we are alive, that people can see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we are to live quiet and peaceable lives during this time. It goes on to say, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we are to submit to the government, pray for the government, pray for peace, that we can live a pot, quiet and peaceable lives so we can shine as, as a city set on a hill that can't be hidden, as, 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 as a light burning that a basket can't be put under because we are praying for peace. That's what we want. And that's what we should be praying for. In Titus 3, 1 and 2, he gives us another passage. He says, remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, 
to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility. I think I need to read that one again. Just, just for the conviction factor. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authority, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. We live in a time where people are just trying to rile us up. We live in a time where they want us divided. They want us in the United States to be divided. And, and Facebook, which I'm, I'm, I always preach against, YouTube, uh, all of these, uh, Instagram, all of them provide places for us to get stirred up and to get upset about the political things that are happening. Those are part of this world. Those things are going to happen. That's not the major reason we're alive. I'm not telling you you can't be political. Sometimes people get upset at us and even leave the church because we're not political. Because quite frankly, personally, this is just me, okay? It's personally. This is, I don't think politics are gonna change anything. I think it's Jesus Christ that changes lives. And I think we live wholeheartedly for him. Amen. That's about a third of the room that's clapping. The other one's which is okay. I'm just saying the, the passages are clear that we are to lead a quiet and peaceable life so that all men can be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And when it comes to paying our taxes, we pay our taxes. And when it comes to our government, we pray for our government because we're a part of this. This is what we are a part of. Even though we're sojourners, even though we're passing through, right now we're here. And so we're involved in these things at this level. Now, he goes on to say, and to God, the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And I think that this was the biggest part of what Jesus was saying. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Then give it to Caesar. Whose image is on you? The Bible says in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and six and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image. By the way, this is Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. Who's the us here? There are some people who try to say that, well, this was a council, a spiritual council that God was having and that he said, let us make man in our own image. But let me ask you a question. Who believe that? How can a spiritual council create man? What part did this spiritual council have in creating man? We know that God is the creator. No one creates but God. And God alone, we're told in Colossians, God alone is creator. So no one else. So the one who made man in his image has to be God. And so we have what I call the complexity of God in Genesis chapter one, the, the re revelation of the complex God. Doesn't necessarily reveal the Trinity because we don't know how many the us or the are are. But right in Genesis 1, we learn that God is complex, that he can have a conversation with himself. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God wanted us from the beginning to have dominion with us. He wanted us to rule with him from the beginning. 
Do you know in the millennial period, the Bible says that we who are in the church are going to be ruling with him? We're going to finally fulfill what God wanted when he made Adam and Eve. He goes on to say then, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So all of us were created in the image of God. There's a lot of debate as to exactly what that means. Some try to say that it's we're body, soul, and spirit. I think it's more than that. I think that God is love and we are given that ability to be able to love. I think that God made us in his image in a, in a very powerful way. Even though people take it too far, I think creativity is a part of it. You and I have the power to be able to create. Out of all of God's creation, we are way above anything else when it comes to be able to create things. Now, the faith movement, the, the prosperity gospel, take this way too far. They even say that you are gods and what you say you speak into existence. And I call that hogwash, so it must be because I just spoke it into existence, that that teaching is hogwash. I like to tell people that think they're God, you are not gods. I hate to shock you, but you are not God, just so you know. And you're not gods with a little G. And even though, hey, you could speak your reality into existence. You could do that. When you're in court next time, just get mouthy with the judge. And you could speak your reality into existence. But we do have creativity. I think there's so many nuances in us being created in the image of God, which is an amazing thing. Now, an image, if you think of the image on a coin, there was an image of Tiberius or an image of Octavian that was on the coin. But it certainly wasn't Octavian and it wasn't Tiberius. It was an image. So you and I are in the image of God. We're certainly not God, but there are things that people can look at us and learn about God. There are things that we can look at ourselves and learn about God because we were created in his image. And if that really is the case, then what do we owe God? If, we, if, I, if I say, we're here, we're using the roads, we're drinking the water, we're doing the things that, that, that we need to do to be able to live and we ought to pay our taxes for it. We, we owe the taxes because we're here partaking of the system. What do we owe God then? Since God created you, since God made you in his image, since God, and, and this is a really powerful point in this study because Caesar is over an, an, an empire and God is over the universe and we are subject to God. We're subject to the authorities. We just read that. Be subject to the authorities, but you are subject to God. Everyone. So, so someone says, well, I don't like that. I don't like that God's a judge. When God says, I'll judge everyone. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that, that all of the dead are going to be risen up after the millennium period. All of the dead are going to rise and stand before him. And at the great white throne, the books will be opened and men will be judged. That's a scary thought. The books will be opened and men will be judged. And people say, well, I don't like that. I don't like that God's going to judge me. I don't want God to judge me. Well, if you don't want God to judge you, there's an out. Because the Bible says that when we come to Christ, we are no longer under the wrath of God and we will no longer be judged. The only thing that's going to happen to us as Christians is our motives are going to be judged during the 
tri tribulation period here on earth, our motives are going to be judged and, and we're going to get hood, wood, hood, <laughs> wood, hay or stubble or precious jewels from that. But the books will be opened, but it's all been cleansed by Jesus Christ for me and for you who are genuine Christians. So you can give your life to Christ. So one of the popular things that people say is I never asked to be born. So if I never asked to be born, then how could God judge me? First of all, why does God need your, your permission to create you? Secondly, you, that's a nonsense question because you're asking him to ask you before you were created. He would have to create you to ask you. And then what if you said no? It's a nonsense question. It doesn't make any sense. I didn't ask to be created, so I shouldn't be judged. Well, I don't know. Here you are. You might not have asked to have been born in the United States, but here you are. Or if you were born somewhere else, here you are. These are things that are out of your control, but you are here. And life is a gift from God. I realize not everyone thinks that, but life is a gift and God gives that gift. He gave that gift to you. And along with that gift comes responsibility. If you mistreat people, God will judge you for it. If you are hateful, if you are angry, you will be judged for it. In fact, you are already under condemnation according to Jesus. And you have to come to Christ to be able to find the forgiveness of your sins that you can enter into heaven and begin to live wholeheartedly for him. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Okay, that's what we learned from that. But render to God the things that are God's. And that's so much more powerful. What does God want from me? What am I not giving him? What does, how does he want me to live? What does he want me to do? This is the more important part, I think, of what Jesus said. In verse 26, he says, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. It didn't stop them later on claiming that he did say, don't pay your taxes to Caesar because that's, I think that's what they thought that he was going to say because that's what they would have said. They cared about the people, but Jesus really didn't. And so he was going to bring the truth. And what God cared and what Jesus cared about was not the political issues of his day. He cared about saving souls. I'm not saying that we should not get involved in politics at all, especially when there's innocence, especially when there's justice that is being taken away. I'm just saying that's not our lives and that's not to be our lives. You can, I'm not saying you don't vote. I'm not saying you aren't involved politically. I'm saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is far greater in our lives than the political aspect. The political aspect may be there and maybe you're, you're in government to some degree and, and, and so be it. It'll be more so with you. It's what you do for a living. It's more so for you. But still, even for you, the greater call is your call for Christ. The greater call is to be a witness for him. And what's going to make a difference in your life is if your position is used for him. I don't believe that we're called to Christianize the world. I don't believe that we're called to Christianize government. We're just called to be subject to it. And if God gives us good leaders, the Bible gives a, a proverb that where there are good leaders, the people are fulfilled. Give, let's pray God gives us good leaders. 
But whatever leaders they are, that we would be subject to them. And whatever we have held back from God and not rendered to God, let's give it to God because God will do that great work in our lives as we subject ourselves to him. So obviously they didn't get to trap him. We're not done with him trying. Let me just talk about one more thing that I forgot earlier and I'm done. Uh, The Herodians. Matthew tells us that it was the Pharisees and the Herodians that came and asked him this. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, they were all the same. They were all religious leaders. The Herodians were not. The Herodians were political leaders. They were followers of Herod, originally the king, and they were people that he put into place in government in Israel that didn't have anything to do with religion. So why were the Herodians brought in by the Pharisees? They didn't like each other. They hated each other. Why were the Herodians brought in? Because I think they were hoping, first of all, the Herodians had an interest in getting rid of Jesus as well. Secondly, the Herodians would have been much more, because they were more political than religious, they would have been much more convincing to Pilate. So they were hoping that the Herodians would be able to carry this account of Jesus saying, don't pay taxes to Caesar. They could get him arrested because that's one thing that Rome didn't, you know, deal lightly with was not paying your taxes. All right. So stand with me with you and let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage that helps us to understand that, yeah, we're here. And the true answer to this world that we're living in is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is seeing people saved and surrendered and following you. And Lord, I pray that, that we would render to the government the things that are due and that we would be obedient to what your word says here, that we're to speak evil of no one. Lord, help us. This is an opportunity for us as believers to be doing the very things that you say. Help us to do that. Lord, we also pray that you would help us to give to you the things that are yours. And so we give you our lives. If you are supposed to give a denarius with an image of Caesar to Caesar, If your image is on us, then we're to give you our lives. And so we give you ourselves tonight. Forgive us when we're living for ourselves. Forgive us when we forget that our lives are to be consumed by you. Let us give our lives as living sacrifices. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.